to see everybody. I've had a phrase going over in my mind the last couple of days, and it's found in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm just going to read it to you. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They haven't known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And I just want to say right here, that was not God's plan. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, And man lost paradise with God, fellowship with God, the joy of walking with him, the joy of knowing their creator and finding in him their being, their life, their purpose, their joy, their rest, their peace, their happiness. That was God's plan because everything God made was good. And we all know what happened in the fall. They didn't take heed to what God had said, and they sinned. They rebelled against God. And we see all throughout the Bible this same theme occurring. I see it in my own life. When I was a rebel through and through, knowing from creation, knowing from my upbringing, just knowing from my own conscience there was a God but I was not serving him. I wanted what I wanted. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I was going to try to fill my own need and find my own purpose in life. But yet, in the midst of it all, God was in the background. Through people, through circumstances, through the trials and difficulties, through the emptiness I was experiencing in everything I tried, whether it was money, whether it was houses, whether it was drugs, whether it was sex, whatever it was, nothing could satisfy my heart. There was an emptiness. There was a hopelessness inside. And I went from one thing to another thing to another thing. And that's the picture of being separated from God. We're like in the dark, groping, trying to find something to satisfy, not understanding we were made for him. We were made in the beginning to walk with God, to know him, to be in fellowship with him, to be one with him, to be in a relationship with him. That's what it's all about. And that was God's design for all of eternity. And that's where our true joy and peace and happiness and purpose comes from. And I'm thankful this morning that God was there in my life, even when I wasn't looking for him, calling me, wooing me, 
using everything in my life to try and get my attention, to bring me to a place that I want to talk about today, God's throne of grace. God's throne of grace. There's a throne of judgment that's coming for everyone, but there's also a throne of grace that's available, that Jesus made available. And we see this theme all throughout the Bible, all throughout history. You ever heard the, the saying, you know, it's better to learn from other people's mistakes? And we really should learn from history. Obviously, our country isn't learning from history. Most of us typically don't learn from history. Okay, if I do this, this is what happens. I remember my dad had a lot of wisdom, and he would tell me, like, Jeffrey, you know, don't do this. If you do this, this is going to happen. But, you know, I knew better. That's not going to happen to me. And those words came true. And it's no different with our Heavenly Father. And we got to understand that He sees things, He understands things that we don't understand and that we don't see. And He loves us more than an earthly father could ever love us. And he understands better than we do where our choices apart from him will lead us. It might seem right, the Bible says, the way that seems right to man, but in the end it's death. And that's what we're like without God, trying to navigate our lives. And we don't understand we're heading towards death because we were made for God. That's what salvation really is all about. It's all about God redeeming us and bringing us back into what we were created for, to be like him, to be with him in fellowship. And we're going to be those of us that have put our faith in him. That's our hope. We're going to be with him forever. We're going to have eternal life with him in heaven. Now, we're going to go look back at the book of Nehemiah this morning. We looked at chapter 1 last week, and again, this is a picture of what happens when God is calling, when God is giving us instructions for life, and we rebel against Him. And so the situation is the children of Israel, once again, have rebelled against God. They were taken away into captivity, into the land of Babylon for 70 years. And now that they're at the end and Ezra has already turned to Jerusalem, Nehemiah is still in Babylon and he hears about the destruction that has happened in Jerusalem because the people rebelled against God. And that's what happens for all mankind. That is why the world is in the condition it is in. I think about Romans 1 all the time. Because although they knew God, we could see creation and know there is a God. They denied the truth. They suppressed the truth. We don't want God. We want to be our own God. And when man does that, thinking he's wise, he becomes a fool, and then everything that comes after that is nothing but destruction and sin and all kinds of things that we see listed in Romans 1 that we see happening in our society right now. 
violence, sexual sin, murder, grief, sorrow. I mean, it's all there in our society. And it's all because we don't take heed. We reject and we rebel against God. But God is merciful. And like we heard last week, he's long-suffering. He doesn't desire that any would perish. So God's always there making a way for us to return. And that's really what's happening here in the book of Nehemiah. So just, again, to recap a little bit, uh, in chapter 1 there, Nehemiah, he hears about the destruction. You know, when I look at the news, when I see and hear all the things at our counseling center, when I think about all the things happening around the world, it's like getting this report that Nehemiah gets when these men came and they told him about the Jews who had escaped uh, the, the captivity and Jerusalem and uh, just the reproach they were in and just how all the world, walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. And it says in verse 4 that when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And as he began to pray, he first of all says, Lord of heaven, great and awesome God. He puts God in his proper place. He acknowledges, God, you are God. God, you are right. God, you are over all things. You are great and awesome. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive to me, that you may hear the heart of my prayer of your servant, which I pray before you day and night for the children of Israel, your servants. And here's the confession. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. In other words, Lord, this is our fault. This world is in the condition is in. My life, my family, whatever it is, is because we've rebelled against you. And Lord, we repent. I confess it to you. It's a picture of God shining his light, the word of God coming, showing us where we have sinned and rebelled against the Lord, and simply acknowledging it. It's really a picture of repentance. He's mourning. He's grieving. It's a godly sorrow before God. He's acknowledging, taking responsibility. Lord, this is our fault. This is my fault. This is because I didn't listen to you. I didn't honor you as my creator. I didn't take heed to your word. I didn't allow you to be the Lord of my life. I did my own thing. I was a rebel. I looked to other things other than you. This is why this has happened. But God Remember, I pray, verse 8, the word that you said to Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, bring them to this place, which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. What an awesome promise. Even if it gets so bad that you think there's no hope, I have a promise. 
if you repent, if you turn to me, if you cry out to me, I'll bring you back. I'll restore you. And it really is a picture of heaven. It's God restoring. It's really what salvation is all about, where we understand that this world can't be fixed. It, this world's going to be burned up with fire one day. But God has promised a new heavens and a new earth. That's our living hope, right? So God is saying, listen, I understand more than you do the consequences of your sin. But don't let the consequences of sin, don't let the reality of maybe how you see how far you've fallen discourage you because my promise is to you, if you'll repent, I'll restore you. I'll bring you back into my land. You know, for them it was Canaan. That was the promised land. But we understand that was just a foreshadow of the real thing, our promised land, which is heaven. And that's what Hebrews talks about, and we're going to look at that in a minute here. But what an encouragement that we have in the promises of God, and we need to remember them. He remembered them. And so then he prays in verse 11 that he says, Lord, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So he's still captive. He's not in Jerusalem, and he's a cupbearer. It's kind of like a butler to the king. And he's asking God for favor so that he can go back and help with the restoration. Isn't that kind of what we've been asking the Lord as a church? Lord, here we are. Lord, use us. Lord, we see the need. Lord, we want to make an impact in our community. Lord, use our lives. We are one of those where we see what's happening, Lord. We're choosing to look at the destruction. Lord, we know what it's like for ourselves. And Lord, we want to help others. We want to be part of what you're doing in the earth. We want to be part of your restoration process for people, for families. Give us favor. Give me favor with this king. And so we're going to look here now at verse, uh, chapter 2. And I want us to understand, this is four months later. He's praying, give me this day. But it's four months later, actually, when it happens. And sometimes especially here in America, we want things now, but sometimes we have to wait and we have to pray through and we have to hold faith over things. And so I'm sure he had to do that. Um, I'm sure the king had, they, the custom was there was more than one cupbearer, so they were probably assigned maybe a quarter, a year or whatever. So it was, came up for his time again to come into the king's presence. So that's what's happening here in chapter 2, where it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. So it's four months later, he's still bearing the weight 
of the people that are in bondage. He's still carrying that burden that really we all should. I know for me, it's always there. I understand what God rescued me from. I understand what it's like um, to be under the burden of sin, to be under the curse of this world, to be without hope. So you carry that burden with you all the time. And so he comes into the presence of this king sad. And the king says, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And then it says, so I became dreadfully afraid. Well, why? Well, <laughs> you got to understand something. This is a pagan king, and they had some pretty serious rules about when you came before a king, and you didn't come before the king sad because you're in the presence of the king. You should be happy to be in the presence of the king, and so you could be killed, okay, for coming before the king sad. So that's why it says, therefore I became dreadfully afraid. And the king said, and I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are, burn, gates are burned with fire? And then the king said to me, what do you request? That's kind of like, I know one of the Persian king's rules was if they extended their, if you walked into their presence and they extended their scepter, it meant you wouldn't be killed that you were allowed to come and make your requests made known. So obviously he gets favor from the king. He's faced, what can I do for you? How can I help you? He doesn't just blurt out anything. It's interesting. It says, so I prayed to the Lord. God, help me. I'm sure he was praying and saw, God, give me wisdom. This is it. I mean... I am at the king's word here to help me. God, help me. What do you want, Lord? Give me your heart. Give me your mind, Lord. It's not about what I want. Give me wisdom. And so I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will the journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him uh, a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to cross through, through till I come to Judah." And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me, according to the good hand of my God that was upon me. So I just want you to understand here, the Bible talks about God moving the hearts of kings. So obviously, God was, well, God's hand was on this king to grant to Nehemiah everything he needed. 
He found grace. That's what grace means, favor, undeserved. I don't deserve this, but I'm getting it anyway. And so I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king sent captains of the army and horsemen, so he protection. And when Samballot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So uh, this is for next week, but just understand, when you decide to follow God, when you decide to join God in his work, the enemy is going to immediately raise head. Oh, you, you think you're going to do this thing? We'll see. And we're going to talk about that next week. All the ways we get opposed when we enter into God's work. So he comes to Jerusalem. He's there three days. He arises in the night, and he takes a few men with him. He told no one what God had put in his heart. Sometimes, you know, we need to ponder things in our hearts. Uh, what God had put in his heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with him except the one he rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuge gate, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. And then I went to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley, and I viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. So he's making a thorough inspection of what it's going to take for this task. I mean, he's really uh, taken time to really assess things. Uh, so I went, uh, let's see, then I said to them, Sorry, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. And then I said to them, you see the distress we are in? How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I just want to say this right now. This is exactly what's going on right now in America, in the church. It's almost like God is saying, and he's using different people that have assessed the land and that are in the reality that our walls are broken down. And you got to understand, walls were very significant in those times. Walls are what protected the city. It's what protected families. It's what protected their food and their water supply. Walls were a picture of defense, and within those walls, there was safety. And Solomon equates it to our spiritual life when he says in Proverbs, a man with no rule over a spirit is like a city whose walls are broken down. In other words, the devil has a heyday. There's nothing but destruction because there's no defense, there's no protection. And that's what happens when God isn't in our lives. When we're rebelling against God, we are an open target. And if you think about it, I don't want to get too into this, but 9-11, all the things we see happening, it's God letting the defenses down. It's because the more we reject God, the more he's allowing our enemies to overrun us. They're coming up the border now. 
in hopes that we wake up and realize what's going on. You see, God's trying to get our attention. That's what he does. But we got to take heed to what he's saying. And he's saying to us, come, let us build the walls that we may no longer be a reproach so that people don't look at the church and say, what do they have? You guys are just like us. You guys, you know, um, have all the same problems we do. The church has become a reproach because in most parts it's either dead or it's just religion or it's just an outward form, but there's no power. There's no manifestation of real changed lives. But I thank God he has a remnant. I thank God the gospel has not changed. I thank God he is calling us, his people, to where we're not going to be a reproach anymore, but there's work to be done. And that's what's happening right now. And so I guess I'm saying to you this morning, come, let's, let's do this. Let's rebuild the wall. Let's make a place, an ark, so that we can rescue souls, so that we can help others that are experiencing the destruction that comes with sin and rebelling against God. Let, so we could be a light, a place of hope for people. That's what the children of Israel were supposed to be to the nations around. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what our lives are supposed to be to people that are all around us that don't maybe know what's going on. I talked to someone the other day, uh, one of my neighbors, and, and I know a lot of people feel like this. I, I could see it. I could hear it. He sees no hope. He looks at what's going on in the world, and he's just hopeless. It doesn't look good. But there is hope. There is a place of safety. And it's only found in God. And God is restoring that. So let us rise up and build. And so they set their hands to do this good work. Here we go again. But when Samballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Gershom, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us. They despised us. They said, what is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them, and I said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no right or heritage or memorial in Jerusalem. That's why the devil hates us. He has no right. He has no heritage. He's not going to be grafted back in. And so he seeks to kill and destroy like a roaring lion, whoever he can. And anybody that is going to enter into the work to rescue those souls, he's going to come against us. So we need to understand that. I don't want to get into that today. All right, so this is what I want to do. I want to turn over to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to finish here. Because I want to talk about God's throne of grace. Nehemiah found grace at this king's throne, but I want to talk about another throne. I want to talk about God's throne, a throne of grace talked about in Hebrews. 
I'm going to start in uh, Hebrews 3, where I started off. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness, where your fathers tested and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, now go over to chapter 4. And I'm going to read, starting in verse 11. And I want to tie in now kind of what God has been doing here. Some of you expressed it this morning. God's been speaking to us. God's been talking to us about things in our lives. He's been warning us. He's been saying, you know, it's time to get the idols out. It's time to get serious. We got work to do. This is serious. Souls are perishing every day around us. It's time to put away the distractions. That's what's happened here in Nehemiah. He's all business. He's all about one focus, rebuilding these walls. And we should be all about one focus, the gospel, and bringing the gospel to the lost, restoring souls to God. But there's a warning, and he reminds us in Hebrews of the examples, like we just looked at in Nehemiah. All the examples we have, the children of Israel, right, when they came out of Egypt and they saw the miracles of God, but then the minute they get into the wilderness, they forgot, and they rebelled against the Lord. Yet God had a plan. God was taking them somewhere. He had promised them. A land flowing with milk and honey, houses they didn't build. It's a picture of heaven, you understand. But the minute things got hard, the minute they felt like God wasn't with them or wasn't fair, they rebelled against Lord. Why? Because they didn't know him. They didn't understand his heart. They didn't understand that God is, was for them. He wasn't against them. God is for you. He's not against you. He knows what's best for you. And just like a, a good father would discipline their child, he disciplines us for our good because he doesn't desire that any would perish. He's bringing us somewhere. So here in verse... 11, continuing on, you know, with this warning and yet the promise of rest, he says, let us therefore 
Be diligent to enter that rest. And when he's talking about rest, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about the promised land. Just like the children of Israel, but for us, it's spiritual. Promise rest now in that we know God. We know he's in control. I can have rest. But really also where we're headed. There's two things really involved here. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So again, a warning. And now verse 12, for the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts, the intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from its sight. And that's obviously talking about the Word of God, but it's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about Jesus. And I think we've all experienced that. When God comes and convicts us and He speaks and He exposes our hearts, just like we see in the Old Testament. Remember when they read the Word of God and they realized how far they had gone from God and how they had rebelled. It says they were cut, they wept, they mourned. Remember when Peter preached to the crowd and the Word was piercing them. It says they were cut to the heart and they said, what must we do to be saved? That's what happens when we allow the Word of God to do its work. When we don't resist that conviction, that knowing when God is speaking to us, when he's shining his light in our heart and he's showing us things. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And now this is what I want to, really finish with here in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. It's talking about Jesus. Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is exactly what Nehemiah had to do when he was cut to the heart, when he realized what they had done. He had to hold fast to who God was and his promises. How much more us, Jesus, our high priest, who's passed through the heavens, how much greater is he than some king, some earthly king? We don't have a high priest. And here's the picture of the high priest who would go in and mediate for the people between God for their sins. That's what Jesus did for you and I in heaven. He went into heaven. He mediated for our sins. That's what happened when he died on the cross. His blood was sprinkled not on an earthly mercy seat, but a mercy seat in heaven where once and for all it covered the sins of mankind. He wasn't like any other high priest that had gone before him. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points 
tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's the mystery of God coming to earth. He's a perfect being. He's holy. He couldn't understand what we go through. It'd be like me trying to understand what an ant goes through. But God humbled himself. Philippians 2 says, he didn't consider himself, Jesus, to be equal with God, but he let go of his majesty in heaven. He came as a little baby, dependent on human parents. He grew up, and he experienced what it's like to live in a fallen world. He experienced all the things we go through here. All the sorrows, all the heartaches, all the temptations, all the trials. But he did it perfectly. There was no sin in him. That's why he was the perfect sacrifice. That's why no one else could have satisfied the wrath of God. He was the perfect sacrifice. But he also did it so, he, again, he can understand. He sympathizes with us. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The verse that came to me when I read that this morning was the verse in Matthew 11. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you looking for rest? Are you falling short of the promised rest? Come to me, Jesus said. There's a throne of grace. Are you convicted? Has God been dealing with you? Are you just looking at how bad you are? Well, he knows that. That's why he died for you. He understands. He sympathizes with you. You understand? That's what did it for me. I knew the truth. I knew the truth. I was professing to be a Christian, and I was a stinking rebel. Doing drugs, running around on my wife. Yet all the while, professing, I know God. It would have been right for him to just send a lightning bolt and stamp me out. And and I know you've heard this before, but I'll never forget the day when I thought I had gone too far. And it feels that way. Maybe Nehemiah felt that way. Maybe when he was looking at all the damage. Maybe at one point he got a little overwhelmed. This is too much. We've gone too far. No, if you're still breathing, there's hope. I think about the church where uh, Jesus rebuked it and said, you have a name, you're alive, but you're dead. Yeah, I get hopeless sometimes when I look at the church and I see uh, the things as Christians we're still dealing with. But the promise is, hey, stir up the things that are still there. I don't care if there's a little ember there. I know how to blow life back into that. Repent. Take heed to what I've said to you. Just repent. Turn back to me. I promise you, if you'll turn to me, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll repent, 
and you return to me, I'll return to you. We'll restore the breaches. We'll rebuild the walls. I'll bring you back into that place of safety and rest, and then I'll help you bring others in. There's a throne of grace there. That means you and I don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. That's what's so wonderful about it, and that's what did it for me. When I thought I had gone too far, there was that throne of grace. I was cut. I, I, for the first, I had to see it the way I needed to see it. How bad I really was. That is so important. But then I also had to see how great his grace was. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. And so the, the invitation here is, let us come boldly. It's not a prideful, like, I'm going to swagger into God's presence. No, it's a confidence that I have a high priest. Jesus understands. He died for me. He went through and suffered and died for me, and he understands, and he's calling me. He's inviting me. I've found favor. Now, that's if you're mourning and you're grieving in the right way. Those are the ones he sees. The humble, the contrite, the broken in spirit. That's what Nehemiah was. That's why he found favor. That's how we find favor. A proud man, God resists. God can't help a proud man. But if we'll humble ourselves, someone read that under the mighty hand of God, then he'll come in and lift us up. He'll lift our head up. What can I do for you? Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me, Lord. I've sinned. I'm a rebel. I've denied you, Lord. I've done my own thing, Lord. I've rebelled against your word. God, please have mercy on me. Well, God promised if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he'll just, he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. So it's not just forgive me, it's now come with me. That's what salvation is. It's not, okay, good, I... I I'm good now. No, because you and I were created for a relationship. So now it's come on, come with me. Get in the yoke with me and learn of me. I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to change your nature. We laugh sometimes. We think about who we were in the past, and it's like, who were those people? I don't even remember that guy. There's little remnants of them, trust me, here and there, but it's amazing what God does in your life. It really is. For I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's not a hard taskmaster. His words aren't hard if you love him. See, if you really understand who he is, it's not burdensome to serve God. It's a joy. It's, it's a delight. It's where you find your pleasure. So we can come boldly, confident to his throne of grace. Why? 
so we can have mercy. That's what we want first. We need pardon. We're guilty. We need pardon. Our first cry should be, God, have mercy. Then we confess, just like he did. Lord, I'm guilty of this, 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 this. Then <clears throat> we ask for that mercy, that cleansing. And then we need to simply believe. Thank you, Lord. There's times of rejoicing, knowing my sins are forgiven. And then there's a surrendering of our lives to him for his purpose. Here I am, Lord. Use me. I'm going to finish with Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So what I want to do to close this morning is, the sense I get to some of you here that you really don't believe God. You have a hard time just believing him. Uh, whether it's believing he really does love you and really is for you, um, that he's not hard and demanding. And because you have a wrong concept of God, you, you rebel against him and you sin against him and you keep going after the wrong things. Well, God is calling you to come to him this morning. He's calling you to repent, basically, that you haven't known him. He's calling you to acknowledge how you've rebelled, confess it to him, ask him to cleanse you and forgive you, and to surrender. And to say, Lord, here I am, use me. And then to trust him, because this is something we got to do all the time. I'm constantly going to the throne of grace because I need a lot of mercy and help. And we're not going to do this without him. And we're going to see, as we continue to go through the book of Nehemiah, they constantly had to turn to God, turn to God, turn to God as the enemy opposed. And the enemy will oppose you. But if God is for you, who can be against you? So I want to give an opportunity this morning for anyone here that needs to come to that throne of grace this morning. I don't care uh, how bad it seems, uh, how impossible it seems to you. God is wanting you to believe him. Don't be like the children of evil. Depart from an evil heart of unbelief. You have to choose to believe God. So I want to invite anyone this morning to come to this altar. God, I repent of my unbelief. Lord, I am coming this morning to your throne of grace. Lord, I am repenting for not believing who you say you are and for choosing other things other than you, Lord. And I'm coming today in faith 
in confidence, not because of what I've done, because of what you've done. In the reality that you sympathize and you're willing and wanting to give me what I need. So if there's anyone here this morning, God is inviting you to come to his throne of grace.